0: to have us begin by looking up at the screens. I want to show you a children's video that explains what black holes are. Sometimes when I'm trying to get my head around really complicated subjects or things that I have no expertise in, I like to go to the children's aisle or the children's version to to figure it out. It just helps me understand it more. In fact, I went through a kick uh, a while back where I was reading a bunch of junior high level biographies There were some historical figures that I wanted to learn about, but I didn't really need 800 pages on Genghis Khan. I just wanted to know a little snippet, so I would read a a 100-page biography on all these different characters. And and for me, it just kind of helps. So you you probably already know all this stuff. You're probably way more advanced than this video. But can you just look at the screens? I want to get this idea of of what is a black hole um, in your thinking as we start.
1: Space place in a snap. What is a black hole? Space is a pretty dark place. Even so, some areas are darker than others. Nothing is darker than a black hole. A black hole is an area of such immense gravity that nothing, not even light, can escape from it. Black holes form at the end of some stars' lives the energy that held the star together disappears and it collapses in on itself, producing a magnificent explosion. Here's where things get crazy. All of that material left over from the explosion, many times the mass of our sun, falls into an infinitely small point. Black holes can form in many ways though, and large black holes can have tens, Two millions of times the mass of our sun trapped in a point smaller than the tip of a pin. Some black holes trap more and more material as their mass increases. The point where all that mass is trapped is called a singularity. It may be infinitely small, but its influence is enormous. Imagine a circle with a singularity in the middle. The gravity on the inside of the circle is so strong that nothing can escape. It sucks in everything, even light. That's why it's black. This circle is known as the event horizon. An event horizon is probably what you are thinking of when you think of a black hole. What would happen, you might wonder, if we took a spacecraft near a black hole's event horizon? The answer? Spaghettification. That's the technical term at least. As our spacecraft approaches, the gravity will be so much stronger on the side closer to the black hole than at the other side that it will get completely stretched out like a piece of spaghetti. Try as you may, you would be hard pressed to find anything weirder or cooler than a black hole. Presented by NASA Space Place.
0: So how crazy and incredible is a black hole? I mean, this is amazing. On NASA's website, black holes get described as these incredible substances that form when a star dies. When a star dies, a star explodes into a supernova. And supernovas are simply the part of the star that explodes into outer space. So when the star begins to die and it collapses, part of it blows up into the galaxy and forms these amazing patterns and these amazing um, sights, But the rest of the star has this dynamic where the gravitational pull of the star turns on itself and it causes the star itself to crumple into this, this tiny microscopic space. Can you imagine a force of gravity that strong? I mean, imagine gravity so strong that when light tries to to sneak away at 186,000 miles per second the black hole's like uh 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 come back here and and or, or imagine the millennium falcon making the jump to light speed and and everything starts to you know morph and the and everything's you know twisting and it escapes and, and then the black hole, uh, the death star just kind of sucks it back in its tractor beam i, I can't even imagine uh, something that powerful picture mount everest undergoing so much gravity that it collapses on itself until it fits into the, the size of a teaspoon. And this little kid's video taught us that there are, there are masses in space, uh, like millions the size of our sun, that get crushed down into just the tip of a, a, a pin. It's absolutely incredible. And, and outer space is so amazing. Why am I talking about black holes, though? This morning, I want to share with you a passage of Scripture that I think is a black hole passage. A couple of weeks ago, I did a message here called My Three Best Friends, Faith, Hope, and Love. And I explained to you how faith, hope, and love are my three best friends, and I talked about how they are your three best friends, and how we want them to be our church's three best friends. At the end of 1 Corinthians 13, the Apostle Paul said, now, faith, hope, and love remain these three. But the greatest of these, the greatest of anything is love. And I want to continue that, that thinking this morning about our three best friends, because our three best friends, faith, hope, and love, show up inside the middle of a black hole scripture passage. So if you have your Bibles, open up to the book of Romans chapter 5. The beginning of the book of Romans uh, uh, 5 has a passage that is so dense, it's like a black hole. There is so much packed into the five little verses of Romans chapter 5 that it's like, it's like an, a Mount Everest of truth packed into a paragraph. In fact, the entirety of the Christian faith And the answer for humanity is wrapped up inside these five little verses. So what I want to try to do today, I want to try and peel back the layers of this black hole and let us get a glimpse of what's inside these verses, or maybe a little more of a Mother's Day-ish metaphor, peel back the petals of the the, the rose. I think you ladies all got roses when you walked in today. But I want to peel back the the thoughts here in Romans 5, um, because I think that this will will strengthen us today. And I think it will allow our three best friends to move a little bit deeper into our core and into our character and into our soul, and that will help us. So I'm gonna start by reading this from Romans, uh, not from Romans, reading this from the NIV translation. The NIV is one of the most understandable translations, and, and even in this simple uh, level translation, it's dense and you'll feel the weight of this. It starts out with the word, therefore. And I know whenever we see a therefore, we're supposed to back up and see what it's connected to, but we don't actually have to do this here because Paul will explain. He says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith. So Paul is going to talk here about the effects of our justification. Justification is a gigantic theological term with profound implications. And And we need to understand what this idea of being justified is all about. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Did you see our first best friend there? Through faith, best friend number one, We've gained access into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope, best friend number two, of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because best friend number three, God's love, has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, that's dense enough just in the NIV. Let me read this to you from the the Amplified version of the Bible. So the NIV tries to make it as simple as possible. The Amplified tries to explain it. It doesn't try to make it more complicated. It just explains it. But in doing so, you kind of get overwhelmed by the density of this passage. Therefore, Since we have been justified, that is acquitted of sin, declared blameless before God by faith, let us grasp the fact that we have peace with God and the joy of reconciliation with Him through our Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed. Through Him, we also have access by faith into this remarkable state of grace in which we firmly and safely and securely stand. Let us rejoice in our hope and the confident assurance of experiencing and enjoying the glory of our great God, the manifestation of his excellence and power. And not only this, but with joy, let us exult in our sufferings and rejoice in our hardships, knowing that hardship, distress, pressure, trouble produces patient endurance and endurance proven character, spiritual maturity and proven character, hope, and confident assurance of eternal salvation. Such hope in God's promises never disappoints us because God's love has been abundantly poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Wow. I mean, can can you sense the density of that passage? I mean, when you read those words, can we just tell, this is awesome, but this is also a lot. We could spend a lot of time just thinking about these phrases and these terms and and meditating here. And and I wanna do that with you this morning because I think this will, will help us understand more about our place in God. And so let's just walk through this. Paul begins by saying, therefore, we have been justified through faith. Now, because justification is such a big complicated idea, Sometimes people try and take my little children's version approach to the term to explain it. So sometimes when we're trying to teach children what justified means, we say being justified is just as if I'd never sinned. So when you're justified, it's just as if I'd never sinned. And that's cute. And that that is kind of on target. And I get why we would explain this term to children that way, but there's more to it than that. Justification was the transaction that occurred when we appropriated Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and we received God's forgiveness, but it wasn't just like God waved a magic wand and was like, you know, poof, all of your sins are gone. That's not exactly the way justification works. Justification works more like this. Picture that you're in a courtroom and you are on trial. And the, the, the litany of your sins and your failures has been read before the court, and so just for fun, just think about all of your sins today. Just think about all of those areas where you messed up and you were awful and you hurt people. And So your sins are on display and you're guilty. And you are about to be judged and the verdict is about to come down and you are going down for your sins. Just as the judge is about to pass sentence, just as the judge is about to proclaim you guilty, someone else steps up and pleads your case. And you discover that someone else has made what we call an atoning sacrifice for you. In other words, they've paid the price for you. They've served the time for you. and, And now we have what we call double jeopardy. And we all know what double jeopardy is, not because we're law students, but because we watch TV and we've seen it in the movies. And it wasn't Ashley Judd in a, in a movie years ago with um, Tommy Lee Jones or something like that. But what we know from the movies is you can't be tried twice for the same crime, right? And so since the price was paid and it's been atoned for, the judge suddenly changes the verdict and no longer are you guilty. The, the gavel comes down and with the full weight of the court and all of the authority that the court possesses, you are declared not guilty. And you are declared innocent. Um, you are an innocent human being. That's what justification is. The judge has declared you innocent. It doesn't mean that you've never sinned. It doesn't mean that, that poof, you're a perfect, sinless, amazing, clean human being. That's not what that means. Uh, justification means that your position has changed. You, you, you're declared clean and innocent when the judge looks at you, the judge looks at you through the lens of the atoning sacrifice of someone else. So I'm judging you based on what someone else has done. Now, after justification, there's another step to the process and we call that sanctification. Sanctification is the process whereby we now start to live out our new innocence. So justification changes your position. It changes the rendering of judgment. But now we have to live out that new reality. That's the process of becoming more like Jesus. The process of growing in holiness, in purity, um, and, and in our faith. Now, the goal of both justification and sanctification is glorification, Glorification is the promised ultimate state of the believer. It's where God's trying to take us. And let me read a a verse from 1 John chapter 3, where the apostle John kind of weaves these three ideas together. Um, In 1 John 3 verse 1, he says, See, or other translations say, Behold, and he uses this dramatic behold, because he's overwhelmed by what he's about to say. Behold what great love The Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are the children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So all who have this hope in them purify themselves just as he is pure. So John weaves these three ideas together. He says, God has justified us. The position has changed. The title has changed. We're his children. He's forgiven you. And he's allowed you to become his daughter or his son. Uh, Now, from that place... We engage with the Holy Spirit in the process of sanctification. John said, if we have this hope, we purify ourselves as he is pure. And ultimately, John says, we do this so that when he appears, we will be like him. That's glorification. Now, just for the record, different denominations have different opinions about how much of this glorification we can experience in this life and how much of it is reserved for heaven. But regardless of what different groups believe, we can grow in this all through our life. So you're not just a forgiven person that needs to stay a miserable, crummy, forgiven sinner the rest of your life. No, we grow in sainthood. We grow in holiness. But it all starts with justification. It all starts with the fact that we receive from Jesus a work on the cross that changes everything. And Paul said, we access this via our first best friend, faith. Now, some people struggle with this kind of stuff because faith can seem very flimsy. Faith can seem very subjective and very shaky, and we're gonna build this whole um, construct of thinking on the idea of faith. Faith is so weak and flimsy. That's not true. Do you know that faith is one of the most powerful substances in the world? Think about this. Faith can survive war. Faith can survive trauma. Faith can survive betrayal. Now, yes, faith can be lost, but faith can be found in the worst situations. Faith can survive horror and come out still believing and even stronger. Um, Faith is one of the most powerful substances in the world. And listen, if you have ever truly sinned, which I have, and if you have ever truly experienced forgiveness, I'm talking on a deep gut level, conscious cleansing level from God and from people, which I have. Oh, this is real. This isn't just a philosophical, interesting idea. This is real. This is powerful. And and real quickly, speaking of um, taking a children's story approach to this stuff, can I read you an excerpt from a book called The Pilgrim's Progress? Anybody here ever read The Pilgrim's Progress? Pilgrim's Progress was written by a fellow named John Bunyan in the 1600s. He was an English minister who had been arrested for having church services that were not sanctioned by the Church of England. And he was in prison, and he, he decides to write kind of a fairy tale-esque version of the Christian reality. He, he writes it on toilet paper. So he wrote this draft on the toilet. I don't know, well, we don't need to go any further than that. I, just, I don't know what he did if he used all of the toilet paper on his book, but but he, he used the toilet paper to write the draft for A Pilgrim's Progress. I want to read the part of his story where he explains justification. And he says, now I saw in my dream, and the whole story is a man who has a dream. So in my dream, uh, and the main character in the story, by the way, is named Christian. And Christian is on a journey toward the celestial city and he says, I saw in my dream that the highway up which Christian ran uh, was fenced on either side by a wall and the wall was called salvation. Up this way therefore did burdened Christian run, but not without great difficulty because of the load upon his back. He ran thus till he came at a place somewhat ascending and upon that place stood a cross, and a little below in the bottom a sepulcher, a tomb. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up to the cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulders and fell from off his back and began to tumble and so continued to do till it came to the mouth of the sepulcher where it fell in and I saw it no more. Then was Christian glad and lightsome and said with a merry heart, he hath given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. Then he stood still a while to look and wonder, for it was very surprising to him that the the sight of the cross should thus ease him of his burden. He looked therefore and he looked again until even the springs that were in his head sent the waters pouring down his cheeks. Now as he stood there looking and weeping, behold, three shining ones came up to him and saluted him saying, peace be to thee. The first said to him, thy sins be forgiven thee. The second stripped him of his rags and clothed him with a change of raiment. The third set a mark on his forehead and gave him a scroll with a seal upon it and bade him look upon the scroll as he ran. And then they said that he should turn it in at the celestial gate of the celestial city at the end of his journey. And so they went on their way. (laughs) And I love this. Christian gave three leaps for joy and went on singing. And that's justification. That's the process of beholding the cross, being atoned for, the tables turn, the verdict changes, and we're at peace. We're made right with God. That is awesome. And Paul says that you have been justified by faith and that through this justification by faith, we now have peace with God. So if you have looked upon the cross and if you have received the atoning, forgiving work of Jesus into your life, you have peace with God. God is not your enemy today. God's not out to get you. He's not your judge. He's your ally. In fact, uh, he loves you so much. Do you know that, that the Bible calls Jesus your older brother? Over in Romans chapter eight, Paul refers to Jesus as the firstborn of many brothers and sisters. Did you know that? He's not out to get you. He's your father. And, and, and so if you doubt that today, if you ever think, oh, I don't know if I'm really rescued. I don't know if he really loves me. That is not coming from God. So if that thinking ever starts to work in your mind, it's not coming from him. It's coming from human wounds, human dysfunction, faulty thinking, maybe spiritual warfare. God is for you. In fact, the word peace in this passage means peace of mind. It means wholeness. It means an untroubled, undisturbed rest and composure. It means that God is for you. No matter where you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what's happened, God is for you. I think that's another black hole. (laughs) That idea of God is for you. We could unpack that for the rest of our lives. Um, There's a lot of truth and a lot of weight behind that. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace, in which we now stand. So, since you've been justified, you are no longer standing in the guilty seat. Now you are standing in a place of grace. Grace is the favor of God. I have a friend named Mike Platter, he's the pastor over at um, Glendora Community Church. He likes to tell his congregation that grace is heavenly help. I have another friend who describes grace this way. My other friend says that justice is getting what you deserve. You are a sinner, you have messed up, you deserve to be punished, and you're going to be punished because that's justice. Mercy, on the other hand, is not getting what you deserve. So you are a sinner, you have messed up, you do deserve to be punished, but we're not going to punish you, we're gonna have mercy on you. Grace, on the other hand, is getting what you don't deserve. So justice is you're gonna get your punishment. Mercy is we're not gonna make you get punished. Grace is we're going to give you what you don't deserve. We're gonna give you all of the things that, that, that love and passion and compassion carry. Um, that's what justification really is. It's not just, okay, I'm no longer treated like a guilty criminal. It's I'm embraced like a daughter or a son. And, and so not only has the verdict changed, Not only did Jesus buy peace for you with God, not only are are you standing in in a a, a new space, not only have you been called daughter or son, but you get to stand in a place of grace, of God's favor. In fact, God's throne. When you picture a judge, you picture a judge sitting on a throne. What's the name of God's throne? Grace. Listen to Hebrews 4.16. Hebrews four sixteen says, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find <clears throat> grace <clears throat> to help us in our time of need. So <clears throat> you've been justified. You are at peace with God. You are standing on top of and inside grace. So what comes next? Well, it makes sense to me that if we've been justified, if we're at peace, if we're standing on grace, our second best friend might show up at this point, which is hope. Paul said that, that you've been justified by faith into this grace in which we now stand and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Doesn't it make sense that if justification is real, we would start to hope And we wouldn't live under a a weight of, of discouragement constantly. There'd be hope in us. And Paul says we hope in the glory of God. That's another black hole term. In fact, the word glory literally means weightiness. The glory of God is the weightiness of the awesomeness and the splendor and the magnificence of God. And Paul said we boast in the glory of God, but um, can I tell you something that is so amazing to me about the glory of God? Do you know that God ties part of his glory to his relationship with us? Uh, there's a document called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It was written hundreds of years ago. It's, it's a teaching document written in 100 question and answer um, statements that describes the essential elements of the Christian faith. The opening question In the Westminster Shorter Catechism says essentially, what is the purpose of mankind? Why are we humans here? That's one of the most fundamental questions to be asked and answered. So the first question says, what is the chief end of man? And that's not dudes, that's male, female, that's mankind. The answer is the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's amazing that God ties his glory to our enjoyment of him. There was a Christian leader named St. Irenaeus. In the second century, he said, the glory of God is man fully alive. So so these Christian thinkers somehow realized that God is glorified and his glory gets revealed when we come fully alive. Now, that might sound a little bit self-centered, like we humans, of course, would deduce that. Unless you're a parent. And if you're a parent, you realize that you are never more glorified as a parent than when your children are truly alive. When your children are alive and living their purpose and vibrant, you feel most glorified as a parent. We boast in hope, in the awesomeness of God, and we boast in the hope that God is making us alive. See, just as in with your justification... You weren't immediately perfect. You were forgiven, and now we grow into this state of sanctification. It's the same thing with life. Are you guys with me still? You're okay with all the theological stuff? Um, At your justification, God brought you to life. He gave you the gift of eternal life. You were taken out of a kingdom of darkness, the Bible says, translated into a kingdom of light. So at this moment, you have eternal life in you, But even though you possess eternal life, God is in the process of making you even more alive. So experientially, let me back up, positionally, you have eternal life. Experientially, as we walk with him, we grow more and more into life. So the closer you walk with Jesus, the more alive friend you become, the more alive boss or teacher or sweetheart or mom or child you become. I just think it's a tragedy that there's so many people today who died a long time ago, but their bodies haven't gotten the memo yet. And they're still going through the motions, and they're still going to work, and they're still going through the motions, but they're disconnected from life. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. But then, if you're still with me in Romans 5, look at verse 3, though. He says, we also glory in our sufferings. Why sufferings? That just does not fit the context. It's all of this awesome stuff. And then he says, wait, we boast in sufferings? How could we boast in those? Well, he tells us, he says that when we are cemented in grace, when we're experiencing justification, when we are enjoying peace with God, when we're filled with hope because of his glory and our relationship with him, even suffering changes when it touches our life. It might come at us as one substance of pain and grief and bummer and a misery, but something so powerful is at work inside us that even suffering gets transformed. And suffering, he says, produces perseverance. So this suffering thought it would destroy you, instead it just worked perseverance into you. And perseverance works a proving character in you. So the suffering thought it was going to destroy your foundation. Your foundation actually got stronger. And and when suffering is producing perseverance and proving character, it eventually produces hope. So suffering is not just random. It's not just pointless sorrow. It becomes redemptive. So suffering deepens us. It adds to our, our compassion it expands us as ministers. It opens horizons of, of perspective that we never had before. It builds us up and hope begins to rescue us. And here's where it gets good. So as if this isn't good up to this point, um, this is where it really gets good. Because verse five says that hope does not put us to shame. Now again, this is the NIV Some other translations like the NAS, the New Living Translation, they say hope does not disappoint. But doesn't that seem a little bit off? I mean, how many times have you hoped and you were disappointed? And I'm not talking about, I hoped for sunshine at my beach day and it didn't, it wasn't sunny. I'm talking about real stuff. Jessica and I have hoped God-sized hopes that didn't happen. And so how can Paul say here that hope does not disappoint? Well, <clears throat> I mean, is he just using hyperbole? Because sometimes the authors of scriptures did. When Jesus said, you know, poke out your eye if you can't keep looking at nasty stuff, he wasn't literally saying, do it. He's using hyperbole. He says, hey, be extreme, take steps, stay pure. But so is this hyperbole? Or, or, or is it true that somehow in this process, we will realize that ultimately hope did not disappoint us. Well, listen to this verse again. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now remain faith, hope, and love, these three But the greatest of these is love. So, when you were justified, you were not only found not guilty, you were not only offered a peace treaty from God, you were not only set on a foundation of grace, you not only began to experience hope, you not only had a revelation of his glory, God did something even bigger than all of that. God gave you himself. Um, God, uh, Jesus told his disciples in John 14 that the Holy Spirit was with them, but the Spirit would be in them. He said it to the disciples. It's a promise for all of us. Now, um, wh- how does the Bible describe a marriage relationship? Wh- what's the term or, or one of the ways that marriage gets described in the Bible? When a husband and a wife come together, it's called what? It's called a, it's called a, a one flesh relationship. Do you remember that? Remember that, that marriage gets described that way. The, the husband and the wife come together and it's called one flesh relationship. Well, in Ephesians 5, Paul describes uh, the fact that a husband-wife relationship, this one flesh relationship, is a, a picture of the kind of intimacy uh, that God desires to have with his church. And, and Paul says, listen, I know this is a profound um, mystery, but it's a reality. It's a reality. Uh, We get to experience God through Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit that indwells us. And that's another black hole statement. We experience God by Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit who indwells us. When God brought you to life at your justification, his breath, his spirit came into you and it animated you on the inside. Now, maybe you totally experienced it or maybe it started as a seed, but God put his nature, his spirit in you. And and that that power and that breath, that animating force is in you. and, And as you work this process, as you walk that path toward the celestial city, things begin to change in you. And God's love through the Holy Spirit begins to work so deeply in you that it actually begins to transform suffering. And the things that should have wiped you out actually introduce you even more to the reality of God's love. And we realize, I'm not abandoned. I'm not forgotten. I'm not going down right now. God's love is beginning to pervade more and more of who I am. And you know what? Circumstances might be miserable, but I'm not disappointed. I've not been put to shame because there's something greater than anything else that I'm facing, and it's love. And love has been poured into the essence of my soul. And I'm going to be even more powerful on the other side. I want to end um, today by reading uh, a passage that just highlights this third best friend. So let me have the worship team rejoin me. I want to read a familiar passage of scripture. But it just does a great job of, of summarizing the power of our third best friend of love. And then we're going to do one final thing we're going to sing that, that famous hymn, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. Do you remember that old hymn? Uh, it sounds like kind of a strange title. Who, I mean, who would want a thousand tongues? Until, until we realize that the author of that hymn must have stared into the black hole of Romans chapter 5. And that author must have realized, God, one tongue is not enough to praise God for everything that's packed inside this passage. You know, if you think about it, one tongue's not enough. In fact, you remember that strange passage in Revelation where there's these creatures around the throne of God and they're described as having eyes all over? Remember that? Anybody read that? They have eyes all over them. It's, this, it's a grotesque visual picture. <clears throat> it's this terrible imagery until I realized one day I thought, maybe, maybe one set of eyes isn't enough. Maybe when you get close enough to God, Maybe when you peel back the layers of that black hole enough, you realize one set of eyes isn't enough to take it all in. I mean, think about this. Something created black holes. Scientists tell us that black holes were formed, many of them, at the Big Bang. We do have, by the way, a biblical explanation for the Big Bang. The Bible does not tell us how old the universe is. The Bible just tells us at the beginning, whenever that was, there was a God who had enough power to create a black hole. And there was a moment when God spoke and said, let there be light. And light just started skipping at 186,000 miles in this explosion across this new creation. And, and so I understand why there's creatures that need a million eyes to take it in and, and a, a worshiper that needs a thousand tongues to sing. So Romans 8 verse 31 says, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? As if we needed anything more than him. But along with him, he's going to graciously give us all things. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. In other words, the gavel has come down. Who can condemn you? You're uncondemnable. Double jeopardy is at work in your life. Who can condemn you? You're forgiven. You're clean. God is the one who justifies. Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised to life, and he's at the right hand of God who is also interceding for us. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. But no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us.